Hello, and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, in moments we'll hear from the newly elected socialist member of the Chicago City Council, Rosanna Rodriguez. And at the bottom of the hour, we'll hear from Ben Fogel on J.R. Bolsonaro's dangerous yet ludicrous early months as president of Brazil. In recent elections in Chicago, six candidates endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America, who all identified as socialists, won election to the city council. One of the six, who just won a runoff election by a margin of 13 votes, is Rosanna Rodriguez. She beat the incumbent, Deb Mel, who'd held the seat for six years. Deb Mel had succeeded her father, Richard Mel, who held the seat for 37 years. He resigned before his term was up, so then Mayor Rahm Emanuel appointed the younger Mel as his successor. Rosanna Rodriguez then toppled the dynasty. How did she and her colleagues do it? Rosanna Rodriguez mentions a hunger strike to protest the closure of the diet school. The reference may sound a little obscure for those not versed in Chicago politics. The full name of the school is the William H. Diet High School for the Arts. In 2015, the city moved to close it, along with 50 others. And a 34-day hunger strike by parents and activists led to a reversal of that decision. Right afterwards, Rodriguez mentions protests by incoming council members against TIF giveaways. That's Chicago jargon for tax breaks given to big developers. Okay, here's Rosanna Rodriguez. First, you're a little bit of your personal and political history. You grew up in Puerto Rico and became a socialist there, right? Could you tell us some of that story? Yes. So I grew up in a small town of Puerto Rico, a coastal town called Umacao, and my father was a community organizer there. So um, I became active very early fighting for water. Our community didn't have running water. The, the water that we would get from the river was re-diverted to a Navy base in a nearby town, a U.S. Navy base. And we had to give a really big fight and we had to come together. I think that was the first time that I realized that um, in order to have access to the resources that we need, we needed to demand them. And in order to demand them, we needed to come together and, and, and build power. So I, I continued um, to organize later in life. Um, at the college level, then I became a teacher. Um, I went through several strikes in Puerto Rico against the privatization of the Puerto Rico Telephone Company to get the Navy out of Vieques, um, which they were bombing for military practice. I got involved in a lot of different struggles. And always the people that were leading the struggles tended to be the socialists. <laughs> Those were the people that were always the most committed and, and involved in this fight. So I have, I have called myself a socialist for a very long time. So the word uh, had good associations for you just from watching what socialists were doing in action. Yes, definitely. And then how did you uh, come to move from Puerto Rico to Chicago? So I, I was a teacher in Puerto Rico. I, my background is in theater, a community theater. So I was a drama teacher in in a small town in Puerto Rico, in Añas, that's the west side of the island. And it was very hard. It was one of the poorest towns in Puerto Rico. I, I was making $1,500 a month and buying all my own supplies. And I had a lot of students. And then in 2008, there was a, a set of laws that were passed. Uh, it was called Law 7. It was a, a set of um, austerity measures that were taken to deal with the crisis. And that eliminated the the cap on the amount of students that you could have in a classroom. So the, the circumstances were already really hard, but then after those measures were passed, it became impossible for a lot of us to, to continue to teach. Um, I went through a very, very hard time. I was feeling like I was just going to become a bad teacher because it, there was not a possibility to teach. It was more like containing students in an enclosed space, and it was dehumanizing. So I started looking for opportunities, but... Um, 
about 20,000 people were laid off in Puerto Rico during that time in the government. So it was really hard to get a job. So I had to leave and I came to Chicago to work with the Albany Park Theater Project, which was a, a youth, a multi-ethnic youth ensemble that created an original place based on people's real life stories. And they would tell stories of immigrant families and working class families in trying to survive in, in Chicago. And I joined the company as a theater artist. And I worked there for seven years. And in that process, I started interviewing a lot of people in my community, uh, people that were fighting for, for many of the same things that I was fighting for in Puerto Rico. And I got to tell their stories and, and listen to their stories and see them organize, change things. And I started developing roots in the community. And that's how I became more involved in politics. And then how did you take the leap into electoral politics from that kind of organizing? So there is this teacher, his name is Tim Megan. He ran for the same position that I just won uh, in 2015. He was also an anti-capitalist and he was fighting um, against privatization and for you know fund, funding public services. So it turned out he, he was a teacher at one of the schools in my community and a lot of the young people that I was mentoring and directing in the company were his students. So I brought him into the company to talk. I ended up getting involved in his campaign. And we ended up 17 votes away from a runoff with that mouth. (laughs) So when we didn't get that seat, we decided to organize ourselves. And we created an independent political organization, an IPO. And we started organizing as 33rd Ward working families. And and we spent four years organizing around uh, housing, immigration, and education. We put several referendums on ballots and we won them. Uh, the referendum to lift the ban on rent control, the referendum to establish a moratorium in charter schools. Um, we created the Albany Park Defense Network, uh, supporting immigrant uh, families going through deportation processes. We supported uh, autonomous tenant unions, creating tenant unions to um, resist evictions by big developers. And this is the work that we have been doing for the last four years. And at some point, somebody in the organization asked me to run, and I said no. And then <laughs> then more people started asking and asking until it became evident that I was an ideal candidate to do it because of my roots in the community and my past organizing work. And I ended up saying yes. And here we are. Yes. Uh, and uh, tell me about the ward. What's the neighborhood like? The ward encompasses several neighborhoods. Uh, there is Albany Park. Albany Park is a super diverse. It's probably the third most diverse neighborhood in the whole country. There's people from everywhere in our in our neighborhood. Uh, the ward is 52% Latinx. People from everywhere in Latin America. Then there is uh, Irving Park, uh, Ravenswood Manors, and Avondale. So lately, we have been dealing with a lot of gentrification, just like the rest of Chicago and the rest of the U.S., right? Like, this is a really big problem, and there's been a lot of displacement. Our ward has lost around 5,000 um, Latinx residents since uh, since 2013, which is when that Mel uh, took the seat. So we're dealing with a lot of issues that are very urgent, such as displacement, but it, it, is, it is a very diverse ward. It is very interesting that in, in a lot of places in the ward, although it is very diverse, there's not a lot of integration, so... You don't see a lot of white people necessarily coming into uh, Latino spaces or vice versa. Uh, so that's something that we want to be able to address. And the Mel family uh, that uh, that's held that seat for a couple of <laughs> a couple of decades, right? Tell us about the Mel family. 
Yeah, so the, so, uh, the Mel family has uh, held that seat for 44 years, since 1975. Big Mel, who was the ward boss uh, for 38 years, uh, he was one of the 29, uh, the group of 29 aldermen who got together to oppose everything that Mayor Harold Washington would do. He was uh, very well known for creating uh, a machine that was built on patronage. He was holding power over that work for a very long time. He was uh, an ally of Ram Emanuel. And um, in 2013, he decided to retire. And uh, his daughter was appointed to the seat. Uh, she didn't have to run. And then we challenged her in 2015. And we were 17 votes away from a runoff. And we finally got it. But they have been in the work for a very long time. Their the name is uh, synonymous with, you know, a dynasty. People that have exercised a lot of power and that have already or have usually sided with, with power and big money in, in Chicago. It's like the heart of, of the Chicago machine, democratic machine. Uh, Chicago has a new mayor. Rahm Emanuel is off the scene, uh, who's been uh, dominating, a ghoulish figure has been dominating po- Chicago politics for, for many years. And now there's a new mayor coming in. Tell us about her and what that means for Chicago. Well, it's very interesting what is happening in city council right now because um, Ram Emanuel was able to um, sort of dominate uh, city council and it, it became like a pretty much like a rubber stamp um, city council where there was very little opposition. So Lori Lightfoot is coming in and it doesn't seem like the city council is going to be um, as compliant <laughs> Um, there are several groups of aldermen with different agendas, and I think that this council is going to be very different from the council that uh, Ram Emanuel had. We have an incoming class of uh, 10 aldermen. Well, there's two that were already there, but then um, there's there's eight of us who were recently elected. Many of us are substituting, and we have taken over seats where these people were complete robber stamps, and we are coming in with progressive politics. We come in with an agenda to benefit the working class. And so it's, it's going to be really interesting. We are hoping that we're going to be moving the action to the left so that we can, so that we can transform this city. Uh, you have uh, five colleagues, six of you all together, elected as socialists, which is more than 10% of the city council, right? Um, tell us about yeah. your colleagues. What, uh, what are the other five all about? And are, do you, are you planning to work together as a, as a socialist force in the city council? I am super excited to serve with all of these people. There's people that are just incredible. And I respect them so much. Um, uh, one of my favorite examples is Jeanette Taylor in the 20th Ward. Jeanette is a fighter. Um, Jeanette is the best example of building power from below. She was a hunger striker with diet school. When when Rami Manuel tried to close 50 schools, diet survived because of people like Janet Taylor that put their lives in the line and said, I'm going to strike and I'm going to go hungry until we get our school. And this is exactly what she did. Even when it threatened her health, she decided that she was going to put her life on the line to save this school because this school was important to the community. It was essential. Um, so this is the kind of people that I'm going to City Hall with. I'm just so excited. Um, a few days ago, last week, uh, there was the, the Lane Dock session and uh, the Lincoln Yards project, which is a massive giveaway of uh, TIF money to private developer, uh, was happening. And many of the incoming aldermen held a protest outside of city council. This is something that I've never seen, you know, <laughs> in Chicago. These people are about to go 
to work in that building, you know, and they are out here, like, doing civil disobedience in the street, saying, you cannot do this, you know, you cannot just give away our money, our tax money. So it's, it's a very exciting time um, to be building in Chicago. Uh, I'm super excited to work with all of these people and, and put together and forward an agenda um, to the left uh, and start floating big ideas, right? Because I think that's one, that's going to be like one of the most important roles of socialists. Like we are still going to be a minority in city council, um, but we can start talking about these bold ideas, just like Bernie Sanders talked about Medicare for all and now Fox News, like, you know, holds a town hall <laughs> and people are clapping for Bernie Sanders um, or, you know, a Green New Deal. What does that look like for Chicago? You know, we, we need to be talking about these things. And I think it is our role to move the imagination of the people as left as we can and put those bold ideas out there so that we can better our lives because we deserve it. I'm speaking with the newly elected socialist member of the Chicago City Council, Rosanna Rodriguez. What about other people in the city council who might be sympathetic uh, to your agenda, even if they don't call themselves socialists? Do you have potential allies of that sort? Yes, definitely. We have many allies. I think uh, we are definitely going to get into the Progressive Caucus, which is going to be is going to be great. I think that there is a lot of points that we are going to be working on together. So people like Sugarza, for example, that is in the Progressive Caucus. I think we are definitely going to have allies. Uh, there's some incoming aldermen like Maria Haddon, for example. She doesn't identify as a socialist, but she's putting forward a very progressive agenda as well and run on a very similar platform to what I run as. Um, so we're definitely going to be building a lot of alliances and, and working together. And the campaign, uh, the experience of your campaign and, and, and that of your colleagues, what kind of advice can you give people who might want to try something similar elsewhere in the country? How do you go about doing this sort of uh, possibly transformative uh, electoral campaign? Organize, organize. We, without four years of organizing around issues that are vital to our community, without four years of making sure that we're going to court to protect immigrant people um, without making sure that we are talking to neighbors and knocking on doors to talk about what rent control would look like, what a moratorium on charter schools would look like. Um, we wouldn't have been able to win. We wouldn't have been able to train so many people who became like so comfortable with going to the doors and talking to people. Like We didn't do this from one day to the other. There's a lot of volunteers that were trained in the process of working on campaigns like Lift the Band. And then you, you also develop roots in the community. People know you uh, and people know what you're about and people trust you, which is a, a fundamental part of this process. Like you, you, you don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm awesome. I'm going to run for office. That is something that you do because people trust you, because people believe that you are going to take them with you wherever you go, you know, to make decisions with you. So organizing and building people power is the only thing that is going to guarantee um, or at least, you know, make it make it possible for a campaign to be successful. We can do things on our, on our own or based political racism personalities. It has to you have to have a movement behind you. And, and, and one beautiful thing about this campaign is that it was pretty much built by leftist organizations that came together and put a lot of energy and work behind um, a vision. So organize and build that vision and then choose somebody that, that you you know that is grown in the movement and run together.
Now, there's some people who uh, on the left who argue that electoral politics is the enemy of real organizing. It's a distraction, uh, that the real action is outside the electoral realm. Uh, what about the relation between electoral politics and you know, longer-term left strategies? How, how do you think these fit together? I think if, if we talk about politics in that way, we're very, being very mechanical because I think it has to do with context. In my experience, I have been outside of electoral politics all my life. I actually never thought that I would ever run for office because that was my vision as well. Like, you know, movements and change happen because people protest and come together and build movements. Except that in this context, for example, gaining institutional power and being able to have a platform <laughs> to put those ideas forward and push and push and push so that the government actually belongs to you <laughs> is what makes a difference, right? In our case, for example, People were being displaced from our community. People are being displaced for, uh, from our community. And then people were trying to get support from the aldermen to, to get the developers to sit down and, and negotiate. And the, the aldermen refused to do that because she was getting campaign donations from the same developers that were displacing the people. So what happens in that office, instead of having somebody that gets contributions from developers, you have an office where these people can come and organize in <laughs> and you can actually you can actually tell the developer, Okay, I need you I need you to, to sit down and negotiate or else, you know, like people need zoning permits, people need a lot of things from offices like the Aldermanic office. So we need to use that power to help people organize and gain power. It's like a you know, like a power electric line. <laughs> it's a power line. You need to pass it on to the movement, right? So I think that there's a lot of things that we can achieve and, and electoral politics is never going to substitute the other thing, but I think that they can complement each other for sure. And what sort of role did DSA play in your campaign? Um, it was huge. I would say that most of the people that were in the core organizing team are DSA members. They are also 33 work working families members, so it was like a double membership. So we had been organizing already, but we're also members of DSA. Uh, yeah, it was it was really big. There was a lot of support from the SA for our campaign, and then there was a lot of other organizations, right, that that came around. So it was it was a team effort, but the SA was as instrumental in in our fight and and this win as as other organizations like Chicago Teachers Union or SEIU. It, it it took a lot of effort from every one of those organizations, and the SA was definitely at the forefront of of the fight. And as you were campaigning, what kind of reaction did you get from uh, voters and the public to the word socialist? Were they intrigued, put off? How did, how did, how did it play? And a lot of, you know, every time that I would like go on TV or that was always a question that people would, would ask, right? Um, what does that mean, you know, being a socialist? I think um, something really interesting happened in the last two weeks of campaigning that my opponent started um, red baiting us. It became really insane. But I think that for the most part, people are getting used to hearing the word socialism. Whether Bernie Sanders runs saying that he was a socialist, Alexandra Castro Cortez um, is is is, is a, a declared socialist, and these people are some of the most popular politicians in the country. So I don't think people were like scared of it. I think it was actually one of the worst possible strategies to try to red bait us at the end of the campaign because. I think people actually like got robbed the wrong way. I think they were trying to make us look like authoritarian, and uh, and people. I don't think that people um, were faced by it. It never happened that people would 
lash out. You know, it was all from the other camp. We didn't have like a lot of comments of people like accusing us of, of anything anywhere. So I think I think people were understanding what we were trying to do. Well, it sounds almost like people are going through what you went through when you were young, that you're seeing that socialists are associated with good things. So what's not to like? I think I actually think that that is very true. And it's been interesting to see some of the young people that I have mentored before, right? That They have seen me in action. They trust me. They know what I am about. And many of my kids, um, the young people that I mentored before that now came into my campaign have joined the essay. <laughs> <laughs> and they call themselves socialists as well because they're, they're not scared of it. They are seeing what is it that we're trying to build, and it's beautiful, and they experience it, right? And I, I do think that in the that, that is being a lot about practice, right? About seeing in the practice what what does this look like? What what does a socialist look like? <laughs> what do we do? What what are we about? Uh, and finally, uh, what what issues are you going to be fighting on? What what will you uh, be your headline issues that you'll be fighting for in your term in the council? Uh, so we definitely need to work on housing. That is our, our top priority. Uh, we need to bring more affordable housing into the world. We need to fight for rent control, and that's going to be a really big fight. We need to leave the ban on rent control and then create our own uh, rent control laws in Chicago. Uh, we need to protect undocumented families and create a deportation defense network that is institutionalized in our community. We also support services for families that have had somebody that has been deported. And we need to make sure that we are addressing schools and public education and public services, mental health services. And we want to create a, a business, a small business incubator so that we can start also helping people in the community create their own projects. Because one thing that happens when places are getting gentrified is that there's a lot of pride on bringing businesses from outside, but then People work for these businesses, but they are not able to create their own. And we live in a very diverse world with people that have so many different ideas and projects and possibilities, uh, but we're not supporting those efforts. So we want to do a lot of culturally relevant development uh, of, of businesses that are going to be able to, to unify in the world. So we're excited about that. That was Rosanna Rodriguez, one of six newly elected socialist members of the Chicago City Council. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of this funeral is for the wrong corpse, the Mekong's 1990 protest against premature obituaries for socialism. Next, Brazil. Last October, Brazilians elected a maniac, Jair Bolsonaro, as their president. 
Even though he spent nearly 20 years in Congress, Bolsonaro ran as an outsider who was going to clean up the corruption endemic to the country's political system, which had been revealed in great detail during an investigation nicknamed the Car Wash. Bolsonaro succeeded Michel Temer, a conservative of no particular distinction, who took office after Dilma Rousseff was impeached over highly exaggerated corruption charges. Her predecessor, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, was convicted of exaggerated corruption charges and is now in prison. Both Dilma and Lula came from the Workers' Party, which, while marred by compromise and, yes, corruption, did some good while in office, raising the incomes of the poorest, much to the annoyance of Brazilian elites, which wanted the Workers' Party, known as the PT, off the scene. They got that. And now they have Bolsonaro, an idiot and an incompetent who is at least going to impose a good round of neoliberal reform. Over the years, Bolsonaro has said hideously violent and hateful things, promised death squads to root out crime, and celebrated the 1964 coup that began over 20 years of military rule. So far, the elites haven't gotten much of that promised round of neoliberal reform. Here's Benjamin Fogel with more. Originally from South Africa and now living in Sao Paulo, Fogel is a Ph.D. student in Latin American history at NYU. He also writes for Jacobin, the Africa is a Country website, and the Mail and Guardian in Johannesburg. Benjamin Fogel. So when Bolsonaro was elected, uh, people uh, felt, not without justification, that he was sort of a, a Brazilian version of something between Trump and Hitler. His early months in office are not exactly a registry of triumph so far, right? He's not been uh, moving from strength to strength? Not exactly. It's kind of been a uh, sort of almost unbroken litany of disasters and embarrassments. Just to uh, sort of bring back your original point about someone being between Trump and Hitler, that's kind of true. I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made, maybe we can get into this later, that Bolsonaro is in some ways a fascist or proto-fascistic or whatever you want to call it. But I think the sort of comparison that Trump has played out. But what we've really seen is that Bolsonaro came to power, in essence, with a very big block behind him, with the, all the support of all the major factions of Brazilian capital, in particular agri- uh, agrarian capital and finance capital, uh, the majority of uh, conservative uh, congressmen and, cons- and conservative parties who normally just line up behind the winner in return for uh, some uh, dividends paid back by the state, or corruption if you would like, and a uh, pretty big popular margin in the vote. But he's not really been able to do much to really sum it up in three points. Bolsonaro seems so far uninterested in governing, secondly, incapable of governing in the sense that he does not have the political or social skills or intellectual abilities to be able to uh, either forge any sort of meaningful block within the Brazilian mess that is the congressional system, or even articulate a clear plan for the government and keep his own disparate and rather bizarre coalition, which is his cabinet, together. And thirdly, he has run up into the block that perhaps he and others assumed that the economy would get going as soon as the taint of the Workers' Party, which had been power before the coup that led to Michelle, parliamentary coup that led to Michelle Temer taking about two years ago, was gone, would end and the economy's prospects would begin and investors, at least Brazilian investors, is a crucial thing. Uh, foreign investors were kind of more skeptical, but Brazilian investors and Brazilian analysts uh, downplayed Bolsonaro's risk of democracy and said, this is great, and they seem to have been proven wrong. Brazil's economic performance is dire, the economy is not doing exactly well, and uh, his government has stumbled from one corruption scandal to political disaster after another, as was told to him by the head of Brazil's uh, Congress, who's hardly a charismatic man. His name is Rodrigo Maia. Bolsonaro, it's time to uh, govern, get off Twitter. And that's kind of what 
people who support have been demanding in terms of those with power. A lot of what you've been saying so far sounds like Trump. Yeah, but the difference is uh, is the Republican Party. So uh, the Republican Party has power and has ability to be part of the state in the sense it's ruled, it controls a lot of the Congress, it knows how to get things passed. Uh, in Brazil, Bolsonaro's party is a bunch of opportunists and lunatics who got together at the last minute to ride Bolsonaro's wave to power. It might be big on paper, but uh, Brazil's got a very fragmented political system, which means you have to broker, bribe, and uh, sit down with uh, a bunch of crooks who and uh, other crazy opportunists in order to get enough people to vote for your policies. Bolsonaro hasn't even tried to do that, really. So uh, where in the United States... Trump came to power with the Republican Party that basically controlled the House, that, could, that had people within the party that knew how to get things passed that the ruling class wanted. And Trump, to an extent, in his moments of coherence, knows how to broker a deal or two. That's his entire brand. Bolsonaro doesn't. And in this sense, he's got a fragmented party, a fragmented political coalition, and he hasn't been able to get things done. And he's had personal scandal after personal scandal, which, unlike Russiagate, are actually hurting his ability to govern. And uh, already the rats are jumping ship. Two of the most bizarre platoonists that jumped on Bolsonaro's coalition, one guy is called Alexandre Frata who made his name as a soap actor who turned into a porn star uh, and then refashioned himself as a reactionary sort of semi-fascist activist uh, who was against corruption and for traditional family values, was one of Bolsonaro's main uh, supporters in the state of Sao Paulo and was elected to be a federal deputy. But within like three months, he's turned into, oh, Bolsonaro is corrupt. We were mistaken to vote for this guy. And the second guy is maybe familiar to some American and internationalists. His name is Jose Pagila, who is the director of the first season of Narcos, uh, among uh, other things, including a horrible series about the Brazilian corruption scandal called O Mecanismo, about Lava Jato, as well as two famous films in Brazil called Elite Squad. And he essentially, even though he probably claims he's some sort of like social liberal fashion, the sort of fascistic aesthetic and uh, the only good criminals, a dead criminal that has enabled Bolsonaro's rise. And he's like trying to distance himself from not only Bolsonaro, but Sergio Moro, who was the guy who uh, led the big anti-corruption investigation, Lava Jato, and who locked former President Rudo Silva up and is now Minister of Justice in Bolsonaro's uh, government. Bajila, who had said like, you know, Moro is the best thing since Jesus Christ, uh, is enabling mafia politics. When you have these sort of like reactionary opportunists jumping ships so quickly, things are not looking good. The thing that big capital cared about most, I think, was getting pension reform, that is slicing the public pension system in half. Has there been any progress on that front? No, it's going backwards. In very crude, vulgar terms, but uh, as I think both of us probably agree that uh, vulgar Marxism explains most things, the deal that made, was made with uh, big capital support Bolsonaro ahead of the Workers' Party candidate, Fernando Haddadji, was that we don't really care about if you uh, kind of want to kill lots of people because we do kill lots of people anyway and we don't care if poor people get killed. We don't care if you want to appoint absolute lunatics in charge of education uh, and Bolsonaro's uh, other ma main political guru, who is this fake philosopher who lives in Virginia. His name is Olavaji Carvalho. And who's able to appoint ministers who, among other things, Olavaju Cavallo believes the sun rotates around the earth and Pepsi is flavored with aborted fetuses. You can do that crazy stuff, but you've got to pass pension reform. Now, pension reform is wildly unpopular. 
But at the same time, the majority of Brazil's degenerate political class who comprise Congress are for it. And it was unable to be passed by Bolsonaro's predecessor, Michel Temer, who, among other things, didn't have to care about being reelected and uh, has been arrested, but he couldn't pass it. So Bolsonaro, who was elected and has a smaller block in Congress behind him, is going to have a more of an uphill battle. But what's happened is instead of uh, sitting down and letting the adults in the room carve together coalition, Bolsonaro refused for several months to meet with the leaders of the main political parties in his coalition and instead either allowed or didn't stop one of his large adult sons called Carlos, who's his social media guru, from uh, insulting all the main leaders of his so-called coalition, including the Speaker of the House, Rodrigo Maio, I mentioned earlier. While Carlos is insulting his allies and Bolsonaro is refusing to negotiate and Part of what this means is he's refusing to offer the traditional financial incentives that you have to to get people in these sort of renter parties to vote for you. It means that the coalition process that you need to do to pass big measures in Congress is stagnating, even though people have offered to do the work for him. But because of Carlos, he's not only alienated the Speaker of the House, but the main sort of adult political fixer in his own party, who uh, has since said that he regretted getting this lunatic elected. That sort of bizarre behavior and also the unsteady nature of Bolsonaro's popularity, which is now at record lows, uh, the opportunists and rats, which, as I've basically said, Brazil's political class and who, including most of his supporters in uh, his own party, are now beginning to say, if pension reform is so unpopular, I don't want to hitch my uh, flag to the sinking ship. And let's talk some about corruption. That's the pretext on which the Workers' Party was deposed. And uh, there's a large campaign against corruption, the car wash investigation, Lava Jato. There are two aspects of corruption I want to talk about. One is what is called corruption is uh, a version of what is done in politics in many places, that is like assembling coalitions and building support. A certain degree of corruption seems essential uh, in Brazilian politics, just structurally, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would make sort of couple distinctions. I, I kind of work on corruption. That's kind of what I do my PhD research on and I write quite a bit on. What people say when they uh, say they're against corruption could really mean anything. Corruption means different things to different people. And often in our times where we lack a sort of ideological clarity or clear political position of what's before and against, corruption can stand in for things you just don't like. And we can get that into that later. But in terms of what corruption is, in some ways, corruption uh, is not just uh, personal greed or uh, is trying to get a bit of the top, but it's a form of governance. It's a form of rule. It's a strategy of governance. I mean, uh, as uh, Gramsci once said, uh, it's halfway between coercion and consent when you can't rule by either uh, forming a popular coalition or by uh, coercion and outright repression. You use corruption to get, to get a government working. In the case of Brazil... I would say, and I think the argument can be made, that the 1988 constitution, which uh, is the one that really structures Brazilian democracy after it came out of a military dictatorship in 1985, encodes a sort of weak party system, which overrepresents small states uh, controlled by political machines which were formerly allied to the dictatorship and have no ideology beyond money. And Brazil is full of these parties with misleading names like the Socialist Party or Socialist Democratic Party. And they don't actually aren't socialist or democratic. They just kind of corrupt landowners of whatever variety you can imagine. As the Workers' Party found when it came to power, because of this fragmented political system, you cannot get a congressional majority on your own terms. So you have to play ball if you want to get to, to pass mandates with these small parties. 
and that requires some form of uh, horse trading. And that's encoded within the Brazilian system. And I think it was, I mean, my argument in some of my academic work is that it was deliberately a strategy dictatorship to hamper any major reform attempts by a left-leaning government. So that's part of what Bolsonaro is dealing with. And he claims he represents the new politics, and this is the old politics. But so far, Bolsonaro himself is entangled in several extremely messy corruption scandals. So uh, his anti-corruption credentials aren't looking so great. So here we have is like, no one's ready for corruption, but corruption is part of the system. And one can't just say, I'm against corruption and expect that's going to stop it from functioning. If you inherit power in a country like Brazil, you're going to have to use some form of influence trading if you're going to pass legislation. And that's a trade-off people have to make. And if it's up to us on the left uh, in Brazil and elsewhere to think of a different position on corruption, even if we're against it, than just morally condemning it. Yeah, and uh, as you've written, um, making uh, anti-corruption politics the center of, of your campaigning um, can be a very dangerous thing, right? Yeah, I mean, if uh, as the Petef found out, as being the party excluded from power for uh, many years because it was left-wing, had radical anti-corruption credentials, but then comes into power and a few years in, it's hampered by what's called the mensalon, which is a, it's basically a monthly payment scandal that uh, nearly sunk the party and the party's never really recovered from. Lula might have been re-elected afterwards, but the party's popularity never really recovered to the same levels, even if Lula was personally popular and had lost parts of its support base. And you'll find people who said, I could never vote for Peter, the Workers' Party, after mensalon. Uh, so regardless if it was completely illegitimate to re- remove the PETA from governments, the PET is, we cannot pretend that there wasn't corruption during PETA, even if it was a function of power. So if uh, you're setting yourself up for that, and I think Bolsonaro is finding out himself as pretending to be this pure moral crusader. Uh, his own corruption scandals are catching up to them. And uh, perhaps I should just break down how bizarre and degenerate they are. Before we, I'd like to get back to the bizarre and degenerate because it's so appealing. But um, the um, leading a war against corruption can encourage these, you know, outsider saviors uh, who are tend to be authoritarian and uh, trading in a lot of snake oil. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's let's think of two more two pretty recent examples. Remember who promised to drain the swamp in the swamp in the United States? Uh, a certain Mr. Donald Trump. And uh, who claimed to have been a businessman, not a politician. And indeed, one of the interesting things about that was when people pointed to Trump's uh, less than uh, clean and uh, business behavior during his time, which includes everything from making deals with the mafia to uh, laundering money for all sorts. Uh, I'm not a Russiagate guy, but Trump's hardly clean. Hardly clean. But the point was, like, people pointed to this, so he didn't pay his taxes, whatever. He, he's just like, he's the victim of the government. He's just a shrewd businessman. The state forces him to be corrupt. And that's kind of like how a lot of people think, that uh, he's an outsider. He knows how the system works. He knows how to stop the corruption, because he's been forced to be the corrupt by the red tape spreading bureaucrats. Uh, that's one example. The other great one was uh, Silvia Berlusconi, also a man not known for being uh, a paragon of moral virtue, uh, kind of inherited the broken Italian political system after the clean hands investigation, which was the inspiration for Lava Jato, locked up and destroyed Italy's sort of post-war political system. So uh, those are two examples of these sort of outsider messiahs who in both these cases happen to be charismatic businessmen with uh, television savvy, uh, in the case of Bolsonaro, and you can point to other examples, maybe Duterte, there's more militaristic and violent examples of this. I'm speaking with the academic and writer Benjamin Fogel. 
Speaking of Duterte, um, have the death squads been unleashed under Bolsonaro, or is that uh, beyond his competence? Okay, so here's where we're going to talk about Bolsonaro's corruption scandals. So uh, Brazil doesn't exactly have like these officially state-controlled death squads. It just has the police. And already the police kill more people in Brazil than anywhere else in the world. And these are not trustworthy numbers, but they surely kill a lot more than they admit. But the police in Rio de Janeiro, uh, which is a city... Depending what measures you take, the metropolitan area is like 12 million people, so it's close to the size of Los Angeles. It's a big metro area. The police in that area basically killed more people last year than the whole of the United States. So the police have been operating unofficial death squads and kill people like it's no one business for many years. And what Bolsonaro taking power only just encourages them to kill more. I mean, Bolsonaro has said himself that a policeman who doesn't kill isn't a real policeman. And there's numerous examples of this encouraging uh, this sort of behavior. Uh, I believe it was in March that, for instance, in uh, a favela, uh, in you know, a shack settlement near the Rio uh, neighborhood of Santa Teresa, which is a very famous tourist area, which is uh, quite famous in Rio, basically like lined up and killed. I forget. I think it might have been 15 people just for the sake of it who weren't really armed. And that sort of stuff has been happening. So the violence. Police violence has been increasing, but it also was increasing before Bolsonaro. Then secondly, we get to what's called the militias. They emerged out of the ashes of death squads that used to operate during the dictatorship. But in the sort of absence of the state, and particularly in Rio de Janeiro, but not only uh, where the state doesn't really have any presence or any uh, social contract in or ability to provide any sort of security in areas such as in favelas, basically, uh, other actors stepped in such as uh, drug trafficking organizations. What the militias were is they started officially, I mean, again, you have to call this bullshit rhetoric, as uh, disgruntled police and firemen or ex-police and firemen uh, getting together to defend communities from drug traffickers and bandits. What they did is they asked for a bunch of money in return, which is effectively what they did was establish giant extortion networks, which are as profitable, if not more profitable, than uh, drug trafficking. So they control everything that the government would do from uh, taxes on oil, internet, electricity, everything in these communities. And, they, and together, these militias control about 25% of real estate alone, even though they operate in other states too, and bring in billions of dollars a year. They also kill a hell of a lot of people. They are, are more feared than drug traffickers. They are incredibly brutal. They were known for like torturing and killing journalists. They have murdered numerous politicians. And they have made the transition from just a bunch of gangsters in the favela to a full-on mafia. And they are basically part of the state. Militia members are elected to official office in Rio. New, almost every politician receives campaign funding from them. And the Bolsonaros are, tie, uh, are completely connected to them. The two big scandals that have come out in terms of corruption is one that uh, basically Bolsonaro's oldest son, whose name is Flavio, who's a, now a senator, had uh, essentially been through his uh, driver, who's one of Bolsonaro's best friends, a guy called Kiroish, had been employing uh, sort of fake staff members uh, with federal funds who would kick back money that was meant to be coming from the state for their salaries to the Bolsonaro family. And this is kind of a common scheme in Brazil. And this, I mean, this is petty corruption and not something that uh, is like a huge deal compared to these billion dollar schemes. But then it turned out that the head of a group 
I'm not kidding. Uh, its its name is called the Office of Crime, which is not a militia. It's a death squad. It's not even a death squad. It's a group of hitmen connected to a militia. The boss of this organization's mother and daughter had been employed as part of the scam by Flavio Bolsonaro. Then it turns out these guys are the ones who are believed to have killed Marielle Franco, who was a uh, black socialist city councillor who was infamously killed along with her driver last year, who I'm sure many listeners would be familiar with the case. So uh, we have the first connection is that the boss of the organization, which is a group of hitmen who do hits for drug traffickers, politicians, and other sorts of organized crime figures who believed to kill Marielle Franco, family members are working for Bolsonaro's oldest son. Then secondly, it emerged that the people who are believed to have pulled the trigger on Marielle also have uh, very close connections to Bolsonaro. This is kind of what Bolsonaro is involved in and gives you an idea of this death squad stuff. Is there any kind of opposition? I mean, the, the left was destroyed, right? I mean, uh, Pete's um, reputation was in the basement, uh, Lula's in jail. Is there any kind of organized opposition to this insanity? It's more complicated. So, uh, so basically, like, just to get in why Bolsonaro's government is so incoherent is partially because it's so full of factions. So you have the military, who may be more than one faction, who occupy a large number of Bolsonaro's cabinet positions, and uh, his vice president, General Moreau, uh, who has been quite vocal in actually criticizing a lot of things Bolsonaro has been doing, saying, like, for example, it's not such a good idea to uh, invade Venezuela and has now become the voice of reason, even though he's also not a very nice and uh, sane individual. Then you have the evangelicals, and Bolsonaro, for, for instance, gave the this week uh, the biggest uh, evangelical bishop in Brazil, who's also kind of runs a mafia. He's kind of like a mob boss himself, a diplomatic passport. Then you have these guys around this crazy philosopher, which includes the foreign minister and the education minister who was just fired and replaced with someone who probably also follows Olavo, and Olavo was just big on fighting cultural Marxism, uh, and he's really obsessed with anal sex. That's another really weird thing. And then you have Bolsonaro and his family, and then you have the free market fundamentalists who are the guys at Wall Street backs and who are expected to bring sanity to this disaster. The main guy is Paolo Gergis, Paolo Gergis, who was a University of Chicago-trained economist who also worked for Pinochet briefly and was portrayed as the voice of reason, I think has safely say, to say proven himself colossally incompetent, thin-skinned, and unable to do what finance capital wants him to do because he's just also an antisocial, self-interested guy who can't tolerate criticism and runs away at the first bit of resistance. And then you also have the anti-corruption crusaders who are led by Sergio Moro, the justice minister. And that's just like, and all of these guys don't like each other. So they've been fighting. The military hates Olavo. Olavo hates the military. And then you have the um, anti-corruption people uh, have sabotaged uh, attempts to do uh, pension reform by uh, locking up Michelle Temer, the former president, who's then been uh, on corruption charges, as a message to say, don't screw us us after the Supreme Court uh stop them from essentially seizing $2.5 billion, which had been confiscated from the state oil company and put in a private fund, which sounds like corruption to me, and stuff like that. So it's a whole complicated mess. So in essence, what's really happened is in terms of the effect of political resistance, it's the corrupt political class. It's the gangsters. It's because they see Bolsonaro as somebody who's not refusing to play ball and messing them around, unreliable, and also just a bit of an asshole. So they are effectively blocking some of his moves in Congress and playing 
hardball. So in a sense, the logic of the system. So when you see ridiculous things like the New York Times, and it was New York Times, it was Time magazine when Bolsonaro was one of the people of the year saying the institutions are working. Trust Brazil's institutions and the, what I've seen is from the last few years living and studying here, such as the Supreme Court and the federal police and all of these things, they're not functioning. That's why Bolsonaro is president. When I mean that can stop Bolsonaro's worst excesses, i.e. maybe slaughtering 20,000 people or whatever the crazy he wants to do it's essentially corruption it's the corrupt political class which are preventing him from doing a lot of these things so uh in terms of the left the workers party wasn't did not very well but is the biggest party in congress so it was badly hurt but it's not dead yet but unfortunately them and the radical left uh, are not in the best situation there isn't exactly a big unified left fighting uh, bolsonaro on this on the streets and in Congress or clear messaging against him while that still could happen. And there's been a big acts of resistance from people against some of Bolsonaro's more odious things. There's been acts of solidarity and there's been some resistance within Congress. There hasn't been a big unity. Part of the reason for it, uh, in my view, uh, the left has just been caught with its no idea of what to offer economically. Uh, Brazil's economy is stagnating. Bolsonaro doesn't even bother to talk about employment. Unlike Trump, when he was elected, he didn't even make appeal to the working class like that. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to kill people and stop crime and end corruption. I'm not even going to give, give you more jobs. So unemployment's really bad, but the left isn't exactly offering a big employment plan or a effective alternative to pension reform or something like that. So that sort of articulation of alternative means that the left is kind of very confused and there's numerous factions vying for leadership in the left uh, with an eye to the next elections or the future rather than trying to build any sort of unified opposition to Bolsonaro. So it's not good, but it's not as bad as it could be, in part because of his own corruption scandals. The political repression that might have followed Bolsonaro's victory hasn't been escalated to a crazy extent yet, and there is potential to build resistance. Moreover, I think that there's still a somewhat of a political block for the left and ability to form things for the future. But right now, it doesn't seem to be offering strong leadership alternative messaging. That was Benjamin Fogel, a grad student in Latin American history at NYU, now based in Sao Paulo, and a journalist who writes for Jacobin, Africa is a Country, and the Mail and Guardian. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this from the new Mekons album, Weimar Vending Machine, a song sort of about Iggy Pop in Berlin. Till next week, bye. Fingers, show me.